I think the biggest problem that we have in Kenya is the society is very sexy and that borders on patriarchy. So we have to break the patriarchal hold. Hello, this is analysis and educational outreach from the Leaders of Africa Project, a broadcast that interviews analysts and academics, as well as shares the tools and techniques for doing research in the governance space. My name is Peter Pinar. I'm a political science researcher here at Michigan State University in the United States. And my name is Michael Conte. I'm a criminal justice, gender and development researcher at Michigan State University. We are the host of this Leaders of Africa Project broadcast. In this episode, we present our interview with Dr. Beatrice Akala, who is presently a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Johannesburg. Her current research interests include gender inequity as well as social justice and transformative policies for higher education. We asked Dr. Akala about women in politics and specifically women becoming political leaders. We also got Dr. Okala's views on gender concerns in Kenya related to the upcoming 2017 elections. Have formal legal policies on gender equity been successful in African countries? What factors influence whether or not women decide to run for political office? How effective was Kenya's 2010 constitution that included gender quotas at promoting women candidacy and their electoral success? We pose these questions and many others to our guest, Dr. Beatrice Akala. Dr. Akala completed her PhD in the School of Education at the University of Witzwatersrand. Presently, Dr. Akala is a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Johannesburg. She has research interests in democracy and human rights in education and gender and affirmative action policies. Recently, Dr. Okala wrote an article about sexism in Kenya's politics that appeared in The Conversation Africa. I should also mention that Dr. Okala is a Kiswahili language specialist and educator. Dr. Okala joined us via Skype from Johannesburg, South Africa. Karibu, Dr. Okala, to the Leaders of Africa project. Let's start by talking about you and your background in researching gender concerns in Africa. I would want to start by saying, what made you interested in gender issues in African countries? Asante sana, that is thank you very much for having me on the program. My interest in gender goes way back from when I was growing up. I grew up in rural Kenya, and I saw the struggles of many girls and women in my community. So that gave me the motivation to get involved in gender issues and hoping that, you know, through the work that I do, I'll be able to motivate other people to get involved and give girls and women a chance at leadership and to include them in development issues in communities and in the country at large. Now, I noticed that your PhD involved the School of Education, but you're also interested in political concerns as well. So I'm curious, what do you see as some of the overlaps between the field of education and political science? How have you tried to serve as a bridge in those two fields between education on the one hand and that research stream and and political science? Education is that is the beginning point. And I think in the Kenyan context, that is what we have always relied on for development. So my interest is that, you know, the more educated women we have, 
the more bridges we build. Because through education, we are able to understand most of the issues in politics. We are able to articulate those issues properly. And we can also be able to share information. And that is informed information from an informed position. So when you go back to communities, then you are able to articulate those issues. If you get a chance to be a leader, then you are a leader that is informed. So in a way, we are trying to say break the glass ceiling to be able to say women can also lead and they have the skills. Without education, somebody would say that is tokenism. But if you are educated, you have the capabilities, you have the skills, then it is very, you know, not quite easy, but you will be able to handle, you know, discourses, debates in the public arena and you can carry those into your community. And if you are very close to your communities, you know the issues you can articulate to the people in a language that they understand. So for me, you start with education, and then education opens up other avenues in politics, in the economy, and in the global world. So as an educationist, I take my work very seriously because it starts in the classroom. You have to study the students. You have to you know, get them informed about, you know, whatever social justice issues that are happening. So education is very key. So you recently wrote this piece in the Conversation Africa entitled, Election Season Offers a Reminder that Kenya Remains Deeply Sexist. Mm -hmm. Uh, Congratulations on the piece, first of all. I'm curious, and and I want to talk about some of your main findings. So Mm -hmm. as Peter was saying, that that was an excellent piece. And one of the things we picked out there is that Kenya's 2010 constitution included gender quotas in the form of women representative positions. And so the goal was to promote women representative roles. Now, you looking back at the 2013 elections and the foregoing 2017 elections, in your view, how effective were these policies? So just before we get to the policies, Kenya, Kenyan women have struggled to succeed in politics, and that is why the 2010 constitution included uh, the clause on, you know, affirmative political positions. We had had other, you know, like in 1998, that was the first time the issue of affirmative action in politics came to parliament. And the bill did not pass. Two or three, there was another attempt and it did not pass. So the 2010 uh, constitution gave women, you know, that kind of um, hope that at least, you know, they were going to be heard in politics. So that was a moment to reflect on and celebrate on the uh, gains of Kenyan women. So then came the 2013 elections, as uh, properly noted. We expected that with the new constitution, because based the two-thirds gender rule that uh, talks about no particular gender should have more than two-thirds uh, in parliament or public positions, and that That's translates right. to 66, like 66 percent at most, and 33 percent at least. So that is a third of the elective positions in politics and public offices. So we expected that, uh, you know, that would be realized because we had the new constitution. But the results of the elections did not reflect that. That is why you have the numbers about 19% only came in, 19% of the women 
came in through the poll. So the two-thirds gender rule was not met. However, we note that this is the only parliament that had many women coming mm-hmm. in since okay. independence. So there was some positivity, we would say, because of the new constitution, but the gender caveat was not met. At least 33.3% of the women did not come in, which we fell short of that requirement. So when you think about that, you know, not meeting those benchmarks, I'm curious, what are some of the reasons why those benchmarks were not reached in the previous 2013 election? As you mentioned, it was some positive step forward, but the commitments were still not met. So I'm curious, why was that the case? And are there any additional accountability measures that are necessary to ensure that these outcomes happen in future elections? That's right. The article, you know, in the conversation stated I think the biggest problem that we have in Kenya is the society is very sexist, and that is that borders on patriarchy. So we have to break the patriarchal hold because we have some communities or some ethnic groups that still don't value women leadership. They see a woman in the traditional sense that you are supposed to be at home, take care of your children, take care of the husband, and your place is not in the public spaces. You are supposed to remain in, you know, private spaces. So we have the cultural, ethnic reason that keeps many women from politics. Uh, the other limiting factor, the economic uh, capital, because we are talking about money. Elections are very expensive. I was reading an article today, and they project that for a presidential candidate, you know, for you to be able to run your campaign in Kenya right now, you need close to 7 billion Kenya shillings. And that money, you need it for, you know, merchandise, you need it for advertisement, you need it for events management, just to organize around, you know, the elections. And there are very few women who can raise that kind of money. So that also keeps them away from politics. So I would say economic capital is a big deterrent as mm-hmm. women participating in politics. And then you have the political capital that we also need because most of the political parties are linked to, to men that are male-dominated. Find that, you know, when you go to prevent your papers or when you show interest in a position, so many of them would consider the male content of us and then the female, you know, comes in later. So the political capital is also a big issue. Uh, that uh, makes women also participate in politics. Our politics are also, you know, they go along with violence. If you remember, I don't know if you read about the 2007 and 2008, uh, you know, post-election violence. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That was a dark moment in our country. Absolutely. And uh, most of the people who suffer from such a violence are women and children. So it's, it's not just about, you know, the physical harm, people get raped, people lose families. And, you know, when you go to campaigns, you also have violence that happens. So you find that uh, many women have to think, you know, really seriously before they undertake, uh, you know, the, the political journey. So it's a host of reasons, but mainly the uh, cultural uh, belief, you know, sexism, the money factor, and then you have the political and the, 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 the violence. Uh, aspect of, of our politics and our, our campaigns in the country. 
Yeah, and we're going to turn to that issue of the, the cultural aspects a bit later. We want to talk a little bit more about some of those institutions. Absolutely, yeah. Peter. Mm-hmm. And I think Dr. Akala have eloquently articulated the yeah. barriers that, you know, inhibits women participation. But again, I want to be the devil advocate here for a moment and say critics of this women's representative position have argued that it limits women to participate and compete for regular member of parliament seat. So in your opinion, has this been the case? It hasn't been because we have the affirmative seat that came with the 2010 constitution. We have six results for women. That is the 47 women representatives. Each mm-hmm. woman for a county have 47 counties. So you have the 47 affirmative seats. But then you have the other competitive seats that you have yes. to go hustle out with, with the male contenders. So it doesn't. That's right. The women, the women who are also interested in those seats. So it does, it does not really. But I think the critics uh, have kind of linked the 47 women representative seats to tokenism. It's like you can't be handing new seats, go out there and fight for them, which is not, in my opinion, not very fair. Mm-hmm. And if you remember in my article, they mm-hmm. use terms like lazy, meaning busy bodies and all yes. that. They're yes. saying, we gave, we gave you this seat what have you done? Some of you have not contributed in parliament. But if you look on the other side, you have so many men who, for the past five years, haven't opened their mouth in parliament, contributed to any debate, and nobody is talking about that. So mm-hmm. it's an issue of double standard. I want to go back to that first part you mentioned about the separation between some of those reserve seats and then those that are generally more competitive. And some critics, as Michael was also alluding to, are saying that this creates a situation where it's separate but not equal. In other words, you have women that are going to be competing for the women's representative seats, but then those other more competitive seats, the the other regular seats, women are crowded out of that category. Do you see that taking place? Is there some sort of, you know, a separate but not equal piece that's been going along with these affirmative action policies? Or do you think these affirmative action policies have really begun to empower women in the political space, as you talked about? I think if you look at the goal of affirmative action, it's positive discrimination. Mm-hmm. And you look at the historical factors, where are we coming from? Because since 1963, we haven't had many women coming through elections. And that is why the writers of the Constitution then envisage the affirmative action seat. So I think when you think about affirmative action, you also have to have a time frame. So I think these are just part of the teaching problem. But once we get to the quarter, we wouldn't want like Kenyan women to be coming into our farmers all the time. They should, we should get to a place when everything is equal and fine then we can drop the affirmative action caveat and let, you know, the Kenyan society that we have transformed, you know, take its course. That's a very good point. And I like the terminology, you know, positive <laughs> discrimination. Uh, yes. Some might argue it's mm-hmm. reverse discrimination, but that's for another day. Now, your article in the conversation interestingly noted that there were more women aspirants in the 2013 mm-hmm. election than previously. And you really accounted mm-hmm. for that, that you recorded 449 women contesting the House. 
what were the success rates for receiving party nominations? I say this because how many women candidates to the National Assembly actually won? And also, if you could talk us through what was the breakdown like? Okay, so for the National Assembly, we only had 16 women mm. who won the election. Wow. That is through, through the competitive the competitive seat. Mm-hmm. But the 47 affirmative action brought in the, 40, the 47 women. Yes. So we have, I think, yeah, I think it, it was either 18 and 47. So we ended up with 66 women in parliament. And the, uh, and the male population is about 196. Mm-hmm. So you can see the disparity even with the affirmative action that's we still right. didn't, that's what I'm saying, we don't meet the gender quota yet. We're still way below that mm-hmm. quota. There's still a gap, and that gap needs it's to be still bridged. There's still a huge gap that needs to be bridged. So even with affirmative action, even with many women being interested in politics, still, they did not go well as we expected. Yeah, and one of the things to note about women's representation is that, and I think you alluded to this in the article, was that it is really a two-step process. That's you know, right. The first step, particularly for those competitive seats, is receiving the nomination, so mm-hmm. r- running yeah. for an office. And the second question is, do you win it? So even if you had many women nominees, that doesn't necessarily assure that they would all win or we would see higher numbers when it comes to the outcomes. And as you've alluded to also earlier, in Kenya, tribe is an important piece of the equation, politically, culturally, but as you know, political parties are very much aligned around tribal basis that is there, and no one would really dispute that. And so I'm curious, when we think about that nomination stage, that first stage, were women nominated by certain parties at higher or lower rates? And also thinking along that, how did it look versus party strongholds versus weak party support. In other words, were women candidates being fielded by parties in areas where they didn't have broad-based support such that they could show that they were nominating women or were women nominated across the board, whether it was a stronghold or a weak support area in the country? It didn't matter whether it was strong or weak. Uh, Those who got nominations across the board, weak and strong. Mm-hmm. So it just it, it boils down to the electorate. Do we want the woman? Do we want the male candidate? So it didn't, it didn't really matter whether it was a stronghold or it was a weak hold. Uh, but one thing I want to note as we talk about this was the governor seat and senator seat. Those are quite lucrative. Mm-hmm. And as I had mentioned, no woman got uh, any of those positions. We didn't have any, although we had women who had expressed interest. So none of them came through. But then we had a few that came in as deputy governors. Like, I think we got two or three of those. So we had, yeah, we had a few who came in as uh, deputy governors, but none of them came through the electoral system. And yeah. none of them was elected. And Dr. Akala, that's an interesting point you yes, make in is, your yeah. article. And, you know, mm-hmm. the viewers out there will be interested to know why is this the case? Yeah, why no governors? You know, for example, as you point out in the Is that article, a no-go zone for women? Is it the reserve of men? Uh, what's play behind the scene there? I think as we are trying to break the glass ceiling, 
we we still looking at uh, you know which positions are male dominated. Now, this being a new structure in the Kenyan politics, there is a lot of hype around governors and the kind of resources they manage. So I think it was just the position and who is perceived to be well, you know, placed uh, to head that docket, and that is why women were not, you know, seen as the favorite to get into those positions. It's quite a prestigious uh, uh, position. We have seen had almost have a, an idea of what a governor does and what kind of resources he manages. Now we can have a good analysis of why women do not get to those positions. But right now we have a few women who have shown interest and have a clinched party nomination. So we'll be mm-hmm. keen to see whether they get into those positions because it's one of those that is hotly contested. And now we understand why. So let's see. Let's have a conversation after the elections in August to be able to see if any of the women get into governor or senator because the two governor senator are quite prestigious. Mm-hmm. You, you seem to be suggesting, Dr. Akala, that at the heart of this is resources and power relations. Yes. yes, it's resources, correct, resources and power relations. Because even now to just get, even for the male contenders for the 2017 election, to just get that ticket has been such a big hassle. Everybody wants to be a governor, nobody wants to be a senator, because now we see senators, they call the senators, it's a house for, for the old, you know, go mm-hmm. sit there and, you know, we don't really have a grip on the resources, we don't, don't, we are not with the people on the ground. So it's a very hotly contested seat. And I think, as you clearly noted, power, relations, and resources, that is what is driving people to hang on to those positions. Yeah, and so when we think about the campaigns that take place, and you've alluded to it, there have been some women who've been nominated for this upcoming election. We've talked about the Afrobarometer in previous broadcasts, and they've posted some data based on round six of their data, which was a survey that was conducted in 2014 in Kenya. That's the last Mm -hmm. round that has been released. And they went Mm -hmm. out into the field and they asked citizens to choose between the following statements. Mm -hmm. And statement one was, men make better political leaders than women and should be elected rather than women. Or statement two, which was, women should have the same chance of being elected to political office as men. And looking at the Kenyan data, a majority, which is 56%, agreed very strongly with the latter statement, that women and men should have an equal opportunity. And another 20% agreed with that statement as well. So if we add that together, that would be 76%. So an overwhelming majority who think that women make as good a leaders as men and should have an equal opportunity. But based on your findings in our discussion here, mm-hmm. you don't really see this manifested in public life in That's terms right. of outcomes. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, what do you think is this difference between surveyed attitudes, which we see reflected in the Afrobarometer, and the aspect of it being in practice? So it depends on where the survey took place and who was who participated, because those views that are presented there are urban and elite. So if if you went to Nairobi and had that survey, you'd get those sentiments. But if you went to my village, talk to my mom, to my dad, you'd get a different opinion. Mm-hmm. So and those are the and those are the people who vote. The biggest problem we have is that the elite who have all the ideas, shun elections. Very few of them go for elections, but the rural majority, 
uh, the ones who participate in elections. And the, the ones who are still very patriarchal, very traditional. So if you poll that population, I'm sure you'd get a different result. Yeah, and the good news about Afrobarometer is it is nationally representative, so it should be able to tease out both those who are in the elite and, and those who are broad-based. Right. But I think one of the analysis we can begin to do and think about with some yeah, of these statistics can... is to do some cross-tabs yeah. and some analysis. You know, is this opinion shared among different tribes or different regions at different levels, or is there an urban-rural difference in terms of people's views? And so I think that's one area we can used to explore some of these issues much further, as you point out. Absolutely, and getting some more in-depth analysis as well, and some in-depth interviews. And, but I was just going to say that that was a 2014 survey. Yes, That's right. What, what, okay. Yeah, so just apart from what I have said, the rural population is also changing. And I think I mentioned also about the MPS, members of county council, that yes. brought in more women. So that could also have, could have worked for the survey because the many women that came in in the rural areas work with the rural communities and they're the ones who know, you know, the real issues on the ground. So I'm sure, you know, perceptions are changing. Uh, perceptions are changing because of that. And given that uh, most of the households are also headed by women, so it's possible that perceptions are changing. So I could say to a, to a certain extent, we would agree with those results. They are looking at the political, institutional provision for members of county assembly. So, Thank you very much for that sentiment, Dr. Yeah. Carla. And <laughs> yes. again, I think I want to zero in on that because the perceptions are there. And uh, mm -hmm. from your article, one of the interesting things that came out also is that how gender discourse manifests itself in campaigns. And so you seem yeah. to say that people question women's interest in politics, supposedly that mm -hmm. it takes away from their obligation to take care of the family. And so you also indicate that women inter-ethnic marriages are targeted by you know, negative campaigning. Yeah, that was really interesting. That's right. And so can you tell us much more about these perceptions that are used to portray women in election and how does it affect the outcome of elections? Yeah, I think also the two issues are, first of all, the elections, are, as I had said, are quite violent. The campaigns I mean, and if we just look at the rhetoric against women and the issue around marriage, it's quite, it's quite big in Kenya. People would want to know, why are you venturing into politics as a married woman? Because mm. you're supposed to be at home, taking care of your family. Because it's like you are abdicating your, your, your responsibilities. Yes. And uh, by implication, your husband is also targeted. It's like, who wears trousers in your house? If mm. you can be at home and your wife is out there in politics, there's a big issue here. So... It's quite big. So you don't win on either front because when you're married, you're supposed to be at home. You're a single woman. What do you know? Because mm -hmm. really, if you have not tested marriage, that is your leadership begins. You, you cannot be our leader as a single woman. And then mm -hmm. when you are, you see you are failure, how can you then lead? So, mm -hmm. you know, those three get to be played around every other time. So a devotee cannot be a leader. And it's something that we've had over time. When mm -hmm. President Moyo was in power and we had powerful women like Wangari Matai, 
and yeah. she was also divorced, and that was thrown at her all the time. You know, Professor Mang- Mang- the next Professor Wangari Masai, he celebrated, you know, worldwide with the Green Belt Movement. And yes, you know, she, that's she, right. She, yes, but you know, that, that did not deter the main politicians who would also have been in a divorce situation to be able to throw it at her all the time. You are divorced, therefore you cannot leave. That issue is also quite huge. We have uh, one of the ladies called uh, Mata Karua, who was a presidential candidate. Of and I was going to—I was actually going to ask you about her in particular. She yes, was a presidential yes, candidate in 2013. And because she also is also divorced, that was part of the rhetoric. So apart from her being branded as an iron lady, because mm-hmm, she's also right. quite strong and and you know having a, a a low background, so she's one of those that has championed for women's rights in the country. So, you know, such kind of rhetoric is not good because when you take it down to the people on the ground and they, you know, and break it down with people who, who are quite traditional and patriarchal will not uh, will appreciate that and they will not be able to give you uh, that kind of, you know, the vote that you require. So it plays a huge, huge role. We talked about people who are in cross-ethnic marriages. That's so right. this has been, yes, this has been a part of the public privilege, but now it's quite pronounced because there are few women who are contesting for positions in places where they were born in their home areas. And they've clearly been told, go to where you are married. That is where you are supposed to go and look for both. Now that is uh, problematic because of language issue. So, for example, if you come from a tribe that does not share a language with your husband, how will you be able to talk to the people on the ground? On the other hand, you have to think about your husband because you are contending for a position your husband is not. So it's not you are likely not to get that position where you are married as opposed to where you are born because you have all factors around you. You have the language, you have your clan, you have your people who can support you. So I think it's a kind of a tactic to keep them away from those positions. So, and it's one of those that is quite, it is being used so much in campaign rallies for those female candidates who are, you know, vying for seats where they were born as opposed to where they're married. It's quite profound what you're saying, Dr. Akala, in terms of how the resume of women within their private sphere is used against them. Mm-hmm being divorced yeah. or being attached to your husband and this mm-hmm. whole notion of you now belong to the husband's side but as you rightly pointed out yeah. the language barrier but again another yeah. idea or notion that is out there is that the campaigns being violent and politics being mm-hmm. a male domain that uh, some people tend to do that deliberately to keep women out of those people because naturally women are known to be peacemakers and and they don't want to get involved in all this tension Mm. and so by creating all these tensions uh, in campaigning it actually discourages women from participating what do you have to say about that yeah it's true it's meant to scare and discourage women uh one of the women candidates called Mili Odiambo She's married to a Zimbabwean, but she's always vied in her home district and she, she's previously won mm-hmm. and she's quite vocal. But recently after she presented her papers, nomination papers, 
she was attacked, her house was burned down, and her bodyguard was killed. Yeah, so, but she, she's quite resolute. She says this will not deter me, and no, she, she, she's still getting on. So, yes, it's supposed to scare and deter, but the women who are saying, don't bring my marriage into this, don't bring my husband into this, mm-hmm. don't bring my community into this, this is pure politics. Now, for women, so these are women in campaigns around nominations and such, but how about those women that actually succeed and have a position as a member of parliament, for example? How are they portrayed in the media or by society at large? So it depends. It depends on um, your developmental record. Mm-hmm. The women who have gone into politics and have performed very well. So that is, that's okay. The perceived positively. Those that uh, get into trouble, for example, you know, we have a lot of corruption scandals in Kenya, mm-hmm. but a few of them who get mentioned in those scandals, then they get it from the public. I think they don't get a fair treatment as compared to their male counterparts who would also be in the same scandals. So. Yeah. There, is a, there is a way that a, a woman is supposed to, you, you, you know, the way society looks at a woman, and if you don't behave in those parameters, then the public goes after you, the legal fraternity goes after you, because I know that we've had a few cabinet secretaries who have been mentioned in corruption cases, but mm-hmm. the women who are mentioned had to quickly be pushed out of their position. And we still have some male uh, yeah, who, who are still there. So mm-hmm. I think it's the whole question of, you know, how women are perceived, how they're supposed to behave. You're supposed to be a good guy. You're not supposed to go and, you know, misbehave when you give you positions. It's harsher for a woman than it is for a man. I think that's a great point. And I think a lot of people are are looking at this issue, the relationship between gender and the issue of corruption, for example. And now they're looking at other countries outside of African countries. If you look at Brazil and other countries, a lot of the women who are presidents of some Latin American countries are those that end up having the corruption allegations followed through versus a lot of men who seem to get off scot-free. So I think it's a really interesting thing. And, And you point out rightly that there have been a number of women officials, so not just MPs, but officials within the state itself that have seemed to be targeted by a lot of these corruption investigations. So one of the questions you raise is, you know, is that a prosecution of corruption, which would be a good thing, is it being applied equally to men and women in those positions? So I think that's a wonderfully taken point. Absolutely. I'm thinking, you know, when you look at uh, the trend, it's not just Kenya, you talked about Brazil. We had the other lady, is it in North Korea recently? Is it North or South Korea? Look at That's the right. American campaign, look at, look, at, uh, look at Hillary and Trump and the public sentiment. So it's something that uh, is quite interesting looking at the trends uh, yes. worldwide. It is, and, and we see mm. those at the head of state level, right? So everyone's focused on that. And I'll throw in the uh, former president of Argentina, de Kirchner, also. We look at the head of state, but as you mm. also mentioned, it's not just head of state, but it's in the state bureaucracy itself. and and in other places. So yeah, it's and a very I, interesting line of research. Absolutely, and at the different levels of representation. Mm-hmm. Now, I would be interested to know that mm-hmm. within all these perceptions that you've alluded to, are there any specific MPs mm-hmm. 
being male or female, attempted to shift the discourse about women in politics because gender issues are sometimes synonymous to women's issues, but it is in fact a developmental issues as you will know. So are there allies in men within the Kenyan parliament or are there advocates as well, strong women leading the fall in terms of shifting the discourse about women in politics? So yes, they are, but again, it's quite hard when you read in the media and, you know, when, when they address a public rally, you are not very sure whether they mean what they say, because if they did, then when the bill comes, when the time comes to vote for a gender bill, why did they abstain? Mm-hmm. Why don't they come to parliament? So I'm, I'm a bit hesitant because I know the president rallies his party, says, please go and vote for that bill. And the guy don't come to parliament. What is the problem? <laughs> so we have... <laughs> yeah, so it, it's, quite, it's a very interesting scenario because if your, your leader, the, your, your, your president has said, be in parliament tomorrow, vote. You know, for this bill, and you don't show up, so don't even respect your president, the head of your party. So I'm not very sure whether this comes as uh, just political rhetoric or they mean what they say. But we have people like the president have talked about, talk about Raila. Raila says we support women, but is it because we want their vote? Are we saying the right thing at the right time? But when time for action comes, we don't stand to be counted. So I am torn between the two. Where is the truth? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And this turns to something that you're alluding to, um, the issue of political parties. And you also mentioned this in the article, that they're a very important part of the equation. And, And even myself, when I've been in Kenya and other countries, I've attended some of these women empowerment political party outreach that takes place, such as the outreach that's done by the National Democratic Institute, an NGO based in the U.S. that helps political parties, think about issues of gender, craft policies within parties and such. And so I'm curious, what should the parties themselves be doing better? They have to do better because, uh, you know, it starts with the political party processes. Mm-hmm. If the political proce- party processes are still uh, entrenched in masculinity, it doesn't matter what policies you have in place. It doesn't matter how progressive you portray yourself to be, we'll go back to your masculine corner. Mm-hmm. So they have to, that's why I say we have to start with their processes, we have to start with the nominations, and also just, you know, the rhetoric within the party. And where do we place the women? Because you could say we have gender sensitive policies, but when it comes to your party list, the women are at the bottom. You had mentioned, you had asked, one of the questions you had put across was whether I am concerned about like the coming general election. We don't have a woman, a woman as one of the key principles. So that goes back to the party. So if the party was not, uh, yeah, so if if the party structures did not value the women in that party enough to be able to say this time, we're going to have a woman presidential candidate, then there is no, no way a woman will be a presidential candidate. Yeah, and that's, so that, that's a point you make. It's, it's not just the ticket that are there where there's no women, but in even the uh, national super alliance, the NASA, 
which is the opposition party in Kenya, mm. none of the key principles of that party are women. And I know that Martha Karua, mm. as, as you mentioned her earlier in the interview, has been very much involved in politics and political life at the elite level in Kenya. But outside of maybe her, women are not really present in both the government side as well as its opposition side. That point is well taken. Absolutely. And mm -hmm. so th there mm -hmm. is this Kiswahili term, loosely translated, put action behind words. And I mm -hmm. think there have been lots of rhetorics, like you rightly pointed out, but what are the prospects for mm -hmm. the 2017 elections? What is the state of play when it comes to women representatives? We have to wait and see. I know we could have maybe an increased number in women members of parliament. I'm hesitant to pronounce on the governor and senator. Mm -hmm. uh, so far, the top positions, nobody has a woman for a running mate, so those ones are not going to see any woman in any of the top structures. Mm -hmm. So uh, as it is, because we've had so many like uh, women who are expressing interest in parliamentary positions. So we just need to see, measure it against the 2013 results and see whether we'll have had an improvement or not. And remember the two gender card bill was not passed in parliament. Yes. Mm -hmm. Several attempts were made, but it didn't go through. So it will, it will be interesting to see what happens now that it gets passed if women are going to go it on their own and make some political mileage. Thank you very much. And I think that's a good one, a wait and see, so we can uh, be yeah, able we... to ascertain what the progress has been like. So let's move yeah. beyond Kenya. Since Kenya is not an island and uh, we can't talk about Kenya in isolation, but all about East Africa more broadly. And so there is a great variation in the number of women in parliament across Africa and across East Africa. That's right. And so we've seen countries such as Rwanda and Uganda, they have higher rates of women in politics. Now, what would you say is responsible mm -hmm. for this outcome? So I would talk about Rwanda because Rwanda is leading uh, on the continent at 56%. Mm -hmm. That's right. Uh, women in parliament. Somebody has argued that because of uh, genocide, there is yes. what we call returning to the womb, returning back to the womb. Many men lost their lives as any information as, as, as women. But Rwanda has valued women more since the genocide. And that is why even, yeah, you know, opportunities to lead. Having many women in government helps, you know, to, to pass bills that are, are, are pro-women. Looking at our cultural positioning, land ownership, gender violence. So those are bills that would easily be brought to parliament and be pushed by women and get support of the, the, the male counterpart. So Rwanda has done quite well. Uganda has done better than Kenya and Tanzania, uh, you know, also done better than Kenya. And what is uh, more surprising is that, you know, Kenya is perceived to be the economic hub of East Africa. So we can't have so many women who, you know, have gone to school. If you look at the literacy, professionalism, there are very many Kenyan women who have gone to school properly as, you know, compared to the other countries. But we, the women are not given opportunities to lead. So it's something that is quite troubling where, where, why 
definitely have uh, you know confidence in uh, women leaders and yet we have many women who have done very well that in NGOs that leading NGOs and leading other you know very important portfolios in the country but in politics not doing very well yeah and you mentioned these variations across the east african countries and i was curious and i looked up the uh, same afrobarometer question i looked at before and the That's survey right. isn't run in rwanda unfortunately so we don't have data on that but in the other east african country mm-hmm. it was and over 30% of tanzanians say that men make mm-hmm. better political leaders than women and similarly high levels also in Burundi and in Uganda. So it seems mm-hmm. like that cultural piece Peace. is there, but there may be variation for some of the reasons that you just mentioned. So one of the yeah. things that I'm curious about is, does that cultural position play in the region at all? Are there some of the similar cultural elements that you've pointed out in Kenya also have an influence in say Rwanda, Tanzania and Uganda? Yes, they do, because we share a lot of cultural beliefs and practices. Uh, you find similar communities in Uganda, Kenya, Tanzania. You find similar communities in Rwanda and Burundi. So the cultures are the same. Mm-hmm. I think what could be differing is the mindset. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the mindset in those, in those communities. That I would say could be, could be the difference. And maybe just the, the political rhetoric. Uh, could be playing a big role in mm-hmm. Kenya. Otherwise, I'm in Uganda, I'm comfortable, I can speak my language, I'm in Tanzania, I'm comfortable, we observe yes. the same cultural practices, so it's not very different. That's right. So are there best practices that can be shared within the East African countries? Uh, in terms of politics, I think we need to look to Rwanda and see what they're doing better than, than we are. Valuing women leadership is key to me giving women an equal opportunity not dwelling on the woman's status in society look at what capabilities they have can you lead despite the fact that you are a divorcee that you are a single woman living in south africa i don't hear much of that mm-hmm. you know your marital status playing a key role in your political life yes. so I think it's just rhetoric and looking at patriarchy because everything rotates around patriarchy, power, its money, because I'm sure you have noted that Kenyan parliamentarians are, are paid highly than any yes, other, that's... you know. Oh, yes, that's right. <laughs> just... I noted that, yes. Yes, so there's the issue of money, money and power, mm-hmm. and those normally rest in the hands of men. Mm-hmm. So... So those are issues that we need to tease out, especially, you know, patriarchy, because we have young girls whom we are bringing up. We want them to, you know, see many women in leadership so that, you know, they can also grow up and aspire to be a president of Kenya one day, to be a vice president, and things like that. So we really need to deal with, you know, the patriarchal society that we are in. One of the interesting things when we look comparatively at East mm-hmm. Africa is some of the countries that have been less democratic are actually those that are leading the way in terms of the number of MPs in Parliament. So Rwanda and Uganda, for example, have a fair number of women both in the bureaucracy or the state, but also in their respective parliaments. And so I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this question. Is it likely that democracy will be key to empowering women in politics or could 
expanding democratic rights and such actually slow certain outcomes for women in countries? I'm curious your thoughts on this. I think it's a catch-22 situation. Mm. <laughs> it is a catch-22 situation because, you know, expanding democracy is good. And if it works the way it's supposed to do, then we would not be having the situation we have right now. But, you know, democracy happens in a society. Mm-hmm. It's the people. You can have the best policies. Like now we have a very progressive constitution. Mm-hmm. But it's the heart. Whom, whom are you handing the constitution to? Has that person changed substantially? So if mm-hmm. the person is still the same person who got a constitution in 1963, are they going to implement the policies, the progressive, you know, constitution? They will not. They will see the constitution of a woman in 1963, and this woman is now living in 2017. So for me, it's a technical situation, and I always say it's the people, it's the society, that the constitution is being, you know, birthed in, that is growing in, that have also to conform, they have to change, to be able to bring about the change that we need. Something that troubles me a lot is that the, 20, the 2013 parliament brought in very youthful, energetic, well-educated young men and young women. But most of the negative sentiments about, you know, women in leadership come from those young young men. And I'm like, we sat in the same class, we went through the same courses. What has changed? Mm. If, if I qualified my Bachelor of Education degree, you did. I was not less than, I was not awarded unless Bachelor of Education degree because I'm a woman. But when you get to parliament, then I am left. I can't operate at the same level as you. So, you know, that's why I still look at patriarchy and say we need to tackle patriarchy because if the young man of, you know, 2017 is still holding on to those values of my great-grandfather, then we have a problem. We will not benefit much from the progressive uh, legislation that we have. Absolutely. And just to follow up on the whole issue around patriarchy, of course, male mm-hmm. dominance over women, but there have also been critics mm-hmm. who are saying that uh, women, some women have internalized this patriarchal dividends in society that men enjoy. And I've seen men as mm-hmm. better leaders as some of the sentiment was coming out from the Afrobarometer. So, how would you subscribe to this idea that some women are they're the ones holding and upholding patriarchy in society? There's truth to that statement, and that is the internalization mm-hmm. of women in superiority because they don't know otherwise. You grew up in a family where you are treated as a lesser being. You saw it happened to your mother, it happened to your grandmother, and therefore you conclude that women cannot make uh, better leaders. And that's why I think civic education is very important. To be able to reach those women, to be able to say women can also lead, women can make better leaders. And that's why I said that with the survey that we talked about, it just depends on where. Because if you enter the village where you have people who are still, you know, hold on to those ideas, they will tell you a woman cannot be a president. She's never been. 
and because of lack of exposure, they even haven't had that Liberia has a female president. So mm. it never happened, it will never mm. be. But if you are able to change those sentiments, then through civic education, because you need to go to the ground, those are the people who vote. And women in Kenya are in the majority. So you do wonder why aren't they voting for the fellow women? Even at the MCA, MP, and whatever position, they vote, women come out in big numbers. It's largely because those who vote still believe that women cannot make better leaders because they've always been led by a man. The home is led by a man, so he's a better leader. And so one of the points I also want to talk about moving this conversation forward and adding another perspective is the area around the West in gender promotion. Critics seem to suggest that Western countries, uh, their influence in terms of gender empowerment is being seen as meddling in the affairs of African countries. And this whole idea of gender seems to be, you know, put forward as a Western concept in some quarters. So what are your thoughts and what is the role that foreign donors and organizations can play in gender empowerment? So you have to, again, go back to the public resource and who is fueling that position. Mm-hmm. Because when you have a public platform, you kind of uh, link Western donors to gender, whatever you want to call it, because I know the research has been that coming to spoil our women. You know? So if you say these people are coming to spoil our women, then that is what will be carried around. And where are you saying this from? If you are in the rural areas, obviously that is, is, is taken seriously because you are in a position of authority. How do you use that, that position? If you use that position to further disadvantage the woman and not see the value in the gender equality mechanisms or whatever is being put forward, then that is quite problematic. But on the other hand, the Western NGOs that come should form a partnership. They should uh, form a partnership with the people on the ground. They should be, they should come in and understand, you know, what are, you know, the lenses through which gender is understood so that you also don't come and propose or come with a program that will not be acceptable to the people on the ground. So work with them and be able to, you know, slowly change perception and de- have them buy up, have a buy-in in what you're trying to do. But I think a lot has been achieved through those advocacies. A lot has been achieved. The people who have still valued the programs on the ground, not just about in politics, I would say like the FGM, you know, we have NGOs that have been quite instrumental in fighting the FGM practice in Kenya. So there's a lot of good in it, but I think it also just gets used as a political tool. It depends on when, you know, it's thrown around and for yes. who to benefit. You have to be very careful of the discourses, you know, around that kind of sentiment. There's always politics that is based on it and somebody is trying to benefit in a way and portray those NGOs in a bad light. I know recently, just with the, with the elections, there are several of them that have been banned and, you know, connected to corruption. But in real sense, that is not the case. It's just because, you know, they're not in good books with, with whoever, you know, is against them. So there's a lot of politics involved. 
a lot of politics involved indeed. And so you will understand that uh, in 1995, that's what most men know about the Beijing conference (laughs) where they felt uh, women have gone together to plot about taking over for men uh, and reversing all the the patriarchal dividends. But it was in fact in 1985 in Nairobi that Mm. a forward-looking strategy around gender issues was really Mm. cemented. So looking forward, Mm. should we be hopeful? Should we be optimistic that something good will come out of Nairobi again come this 2017 elections? I think it's always good to be optimistic. I am mm-hmm. and very excited about the women, many women who are vying for positions, the very many young women who have put themselves out there against all odds. So I am looking forward to a different result. Now, as we close, we wanted to hear about your future plans a bit. So right now you're at the University of Johannesburg as a postdoctoral research fellow. So I'm curious, after the fellowship, what are your plans? Mm. One day at a time, but I love education. I would love to teach because that's where you get the young mind, you impact, you impact the young mind. I love to teach, continue with research, you know, continue with community activism, on gender and justice. Dr. Akala, thank you for talking to the leaders of Africa Project and all the best with your research. We hope that you will speak with us again in the future. Dr. Beatrice Akala is presently a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Johannesburg. We spoke to Dr. Akala about gender equity in politics and Kenya's upcoming election. Do you have thoughts on whether gender policies are being adequately implemented in your country? We want to hear from you. Email us with your questions and comments at yourvoice at leadersofafrica.org. And that's it for me, Peter Pinar. And Michael Conte. On this episode of Analysis and Educational Outreach from the Leaders of Africa Project. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, stay tuned.